watching you. You said Amina Loza, Ail Pravda Zali Setsa Nesminu, Enlightenment Radio, Rupo Vso Musvidu, Zed Vami 24 Godini Musiki, Prami Translasi Talmishtasni Pied Devisan Harista Pied Kas Mishtagnoi Podrozi, Tokakon. that time again enlightenment radio we're testing then doing some tests today kind of like you know when you run into a traffic jam and they tell you to go over to the other lane that's us we're making you go to another lane 52 degrees in downtown kiev uh it's about 60 here i'm guessing i stuck my finger out the window We've got some excellent news for you today. We've got some music. We've got some entertainment. But like I said, we are testing out. And if things work out, I'm going to tell you ahead of time. You're going to be seeing real-time Ukraine language. It's going to happen. We tested it, and we're going to retest it. But it didn't quite come off by showtime. Isn't that showtime? Isn't that showbiz? Isn't that how glitches work? So our first uh, story today is by a beautiful uh, Anya. She comes, she reports from the uh, Kiev Post, and she just these reporters are painting a picture, different picture that I see that the U.S. magazines and propaganda that Putin is sending over here, and they're printing it. It's disgusting that the U.S. is in bed with Putin. You know why? Because. Biden took bribes from him, and he owes him. Well, that's another story. Let's start with her, see what she has to say. It's pretty heavy-duty stuff. personnel losses are so high and morale is so low that soldiers are being executed for not following orders, according to the White House. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said on Thursday that as well as individual cases of capital punishment, Entire units were being threatened with execution if they retreat from Ukrainian artillery fire. He described it as reprehensible. Today, we'll take a look at how bad Russian troop losses really are and see the Kremlin's reaction. I'm Anya Korzon, a journalist at Kiev Post. Subscribe to our channel for regular updates, exclusive interviews, and explainers. So Moscow's troops have been suffering horrific losses during the ongoing and so far unsuccessful attempt to take Avdiivka, a small town in eastern Ukraine. Independent Ukrainian and even many Russian sources are all saying the same thing. Did you hear that? The Russians are suffering heavy losses. We're not hearing that over here in Time magazine or in Congress. We're hearing just the opposite, that the... The uh, on the turnaround or the what do you call it the new wave whatever it is of the Ukraine army is slowed down and bogged down. We're not hearing that the Russians are getting ass kicked. But the Kremlin seems to be in denial once again. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Putin in denial. Television on Tuesday 
visiting troops in East Ukraine and telling them, the situation today suggests the enemy has fewer and fewer opportunities, and they will continue to be reduced, thanks exclusively to your combat work. Shoigu was filmed smiling and laughing when a Russian soldier told him Ukrainian troops were in a panic. Meanwhile, everyone else is painting a very different picture. According to the intelligence report from British Ministry of Defense on October 22nd, recent Russian assaults in Avdiivka have contributed a 90% increase in Russian casualties. A 90% increase from Russian casualties, that is from the British intelligence. That's not from Time magazine. That's not from Congress. That's not from Poopaganda. Putinganda. That's from British intelligence, who is also helping them aim the rockets at the right places. You know, let me say it again. 500,000 Russians are fleeing, evacuating Crimea. That's part of this program. Supported by Ukrainian MOD. Then, Ukrainian Tavriz Group of Forces spokesperson stated on October 26 that Russian forces have suffered 5,000 personnel killed and wounded near Avdiivka since October 10th. 5,000 deaths, dead. How do you think the Russian mothers, the Russian parents feel about this war now? How long can Putin keep this up for a bunch of damaged buildings? Ragnar Gudmundsson, an Iceland-based analyst, reported on Wednesday that Russian casualties hit a probable wartime record of more than 1,400 killed in combat in a single day on October 20th. According to his analysis, losses have averaged 900 men a day killed in combat from 10th to 20th of October. This time window is coinciding almost exactly with the launch of major Russian army attacks in the Avdiivka sector. An open video appeal to Russian President Putin from wives and mothers of soldiers from the Russian city Kirov was published on Monday. What did I say? The Russian mothers and the, the women are getting upset with their husbands dropping in the field dead. Claiming their husbands and sons were thrown That's what I wanted to see. Donbass sector with minimal training and equipment. Local commanders use violence and the threat of violence to force the Kirov reservists to conduct bloody attacks across open ground, killing and wounding many of them. Our men were not ready to perform these tasks. As a result of this, our regiment suffers personal losses every day. Dialogue with the command is impossible. Our guys are intimidated and threatened to be executed. Meanwhile, in the Kremlin, Deputy Chairman of the Security Council of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, boasted that so far in 2023, almost 385,000 enlisted in the armed forces of the Russian Federation. According to him, the pace of selection for military service under the contract has increased significantly. Every day, more than 1,600 people sign a contract with the armed forces. He claimed that it is the high patriotic spirit and desire of Russians to protect their motherland that motivates such high numbers of new recruits. But Putin's press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, believes that many Russians are attracted to contract service as something more material. And I quote, very attractive financial conditions, and a rather impressive contract. Back in March 2023, the starting salary for a Russian soldier fighting in Ukraine was 195,000 rubles per month, which is roughly $2,500. It is nearly 14 times higher than the median salary in some regions of Russia. 
So which one is it? Patriotic spirit or rubles that are motivating these Russian men? That's it for today. I'm Anya Korzun. Thank you for watching. And please don't forget to subscribe to our channel, like this video, and leave us a comment. And I'll see you next time. Well, thank you, Anya Korzun from the uh, Kiev Post. She's a good reporter. I'm going to try to get her, once we get going in the Ukraine language and we get going with our uh, YouTube channel, I'm going to try to get her live occasionally. Make, like, say, every once a day, every other, I mean, once a week, have her on. She reports very good news. Now, for my pet peeve, the child trafficking is much worse than we thought. It is a major it's like selling oil. It's like selling food. They're selling children. They're selling people. They're selling sex. That's our Vladimir Putin. He is the biggest terrorist in the world, and we're worried about Hamas. You know what happens when they wipe out Hamas? Then somebody else comes along with another name. That's endless over there. We've got a chance to win this and stop this child trafficking right now. Listen to this report, it will curl your hair. Victor, it's great to see you this morning. Yeah, same here. So Victor, you wrote a hit book 20, about 25 years ago about the plight of women who are trafficked uh, from many countries, but especially from Ukraine uh, throughout various parts of the world. And now the situation for Ukraine, as you're well enough aware, about 6.2 million refugees are currently located in Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, the majority of them, of course, being women and children. You keep up on these issues, I imagine. What's the situation now with sex trafficking or human trafficking of uh, people who have made their way to Europe? Well, the one thing that worried me instantly when you know, the huge numbers of women and children were heading for the borders and, and trying to get out of or fleeing Ukraine because of the Russian invasion. Right away, I said, there's going to be traffickers and, and their, their helpers trying to get women and children into their, into their nets and capture them and, and take them off. And I knew it was going to happen, and it has happened. It has been cited in the uh, U.S. State Department annual reports on trafficking in, in, uh, in persons. And it is really, really bad. Women have disappeared. Children have disappeared. And one of the things that if you look at, you, you, you just have to look at online escort services and where they're providing Ukrainian women. And you'll see over the last number of years, they've skyrocketed. They've really increased. And the thing is that so many young women who are leaving, who are fleeing, don't realize what could be waiting for them at the other side of the border. And right away, as soon as this, this issue started with fleeing, fleeing out of the country, out of Ukraine, I knew that this was going to happen, and it has happened. The problem is very, very little has been done about it, very little in the way of rescues, uh, very little on, on the part of the Ukrainian government. And I look, I know the, the Ukrainian government's hands are filled with fighting the war inside Ukraine, but outside Ukraine, Nobody's fighting the war for saving these women and saving these children from being trafficked into, into the prostitution trade, from being trafficked into pornography, uh, all these kinds of things that are horrific to these young women and to these children 
who thought, wow, uh, we're going to go for safety, and instead they end up in a nightmare. How prevalent is this? Is this something that's occurring specifically in Europe or in other countries, or do they usually, once they've entered into this, stay in Europe? What, what happens? What's the process? Well, you know, once they get grabbed, and, and I've seen this uh, when I was doing the Natasha's, you know, Ukrainian women coming across the border to work in, in Poland, suddenly finding themselves in Germany or France or, or uh, Greece or, uh, you know, Israel or even China and, and parts of Africa. They get, you know, in, into this situation where the traffickers know where to send them. You know, I, I saw one in, in, in Bosnia, when I was in Bosnia doing research, where they were paraded naked on a stage in a town called Tuzla, where, uh, and it was called uh, the, the Arizona market. And the women were being sold to traffickers. They were bidding on them so that they could take them to wherever, by car or by train or, or whatever, by, by, by ship. The, the trafficking, the, the worst thing about trafficking is people somehow get looped into it by believing that they're going to get a legitimate job or believing this person sometimes a woman, or oftentimes now a woman, is going to do something good for them. But they're part of the trafficking problem and the trafficking network, the criminal network, that uses and abuses these people. You know, when I was in, uh, in Kosovo and Bosnia and places like that doing research, I couldn't believe how many 16, 17, and 18-year-old girls had been trafficked, upwards of 5,000, being abused by peacekeepers, UN peacekeepers, who were supposedly there to bring peace and, and stability to a war-torn area. And at the same time, they're doing their R&R, rest and recreation, by abusing sexually 16, 17, and 18-year-old trafficked girls. And you know how many of them were from Ukraine and Romania and Moldova and Bulgaria? It, it, it just shocked me. And, you know, trying to rescue them and, and having guns pointed at me and asking the UN uh, officials, why are you allowing these soldiers to do this? Because and they were saying, well, you know, it's the local population. It's the local population doesn't have money. They're impoverished. They're specifically there to be abused sexually by these soldiers who are peacekeepers with the United Nations. And, you know, there was a big battle between me and the, the head of the United Nations Peacekeepers Unit because he was trying to deny it, except there were so many facts that I had and can prove it 100%. But, you know... How do you rescue these girls and bring them back home? It seems like they, they will stay in these brothels in Germany, in France, in, in the Netherlands. They'll be in strip clubs in Canada. They'll be in strip clubs in, in, in the United States. They're all over the place. And it's amazing how the network manages to get these young women and kids into these places. Children, I mean, like are 15, 16, 17. One of the things that I found when I was researching was the internats, the orphanages in Ukraine, where directors of orphanages were suddenly saying to a girl who's now aging out at 17 or 18, oh, Uncle Bogdan is here. He's never been his, the Uncle Bogdan ever in her life in, in, the, in the internat, but he suddenly appears, and then the girl disappears. You know, she, she went into an institution, you exist in an institution, then you disappear. And the one thing that worries me now is these Russian forces stealing children from the orphanages, kidnapping them, bringing them into Russia. And my concern is, what's happening to the teenage girls? 
I can tell you what's happening to the teenage girls. They're going to be trafficked because nobody really wants them except for making money on their backs. And, and that is a scary venture. How do you rescue these teenage girls? And that's what makes me even boil more because nobody is actually saying anything or doing anything about it. I often wonder, where the hell is the UN? The UN could be going in there and saying, hey, you got to stop this and, and give us those, uh, those, those children back. But no, they say, oh, this is happening. Oh, isn't that terrible? You know, for me, every time I've dealt with the UN, I always leave with this. UN stands for unable. They're unable to do anything about any human rights crisis anywhere in the world. And particularly now, when you have orphanages being raided by Russian bastards and the girls being taken away and the, and the boys being taken away probably for slavery on farms or whatever. Because, you know, look, they're not doing anything humanitarian or good or whatever these liars in Moscow are saying. They have over a million children in, in internats or orphanages throughout Russia, and they don't want those kids. Why would they want Ukrainian kids? You have to ask yourself, why are they stealing, kidnapping Ukrainian children? And in particular, when you have teenage girls, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, 17, I know what's gonna happen to a lot of them, and it's frightening. It'll be internal trafficking throughout Russia and external wherever they send them around the world to be abused sexually. Now, what is the life, once a woman is trafficked into this and she ends up in, for instance, in your book, you discuss the Balkans at length. What is their day-to-day -day life like once they've been shipped there to work? Well, they're told, you owe us 20,000 euros, 10,000 euros for your freedom. So you have to work it off. And they're, you know, they may be able to make 250 to 500 euros a day, servicing 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, uh, not being able to refuse anyone, uh, being raped or, or physically beaten if, if they uh, refuse. You know, the stories, the horrific stories I've heard from young women uh, who, who've been rescued, uh, both in, in Italy and, and in the Bosnia and Kosovo and whatever, in Israel, in France, in Spain, are chilling to the bone. Look, they can't run away. But you know, the authorities know where these places are. I mean, holy moly, when, when it was the UN peacekeepers, they all knew that every single brothel was beside a UN peacekeeping encampment. Didn't matter if it was French, France, or, or Germany, or England, or Canada, or the United States, or Russia, or whatever. There, they were there, and they were there specifically for the entertainment of the soldiers. And the soldiers were paying whatever they did, 50 euros or whatever per girl, whenever they wanted. And it was disgusting to go into these bars where these men were just thinking that these women, these women, these girls, actually, these teenagers, would give a damn about them. And you'd see the fear in the girl's face. You know, when I rescued six girls out of a, out of a brothel in the in uh, Farazai in Kosovo. And then uh, two of them were Ukrainian, two uh, Moldovan and one Romanian and, uh, and another Bulgarian. It was horrific to see what they looked like. And when you looked at their passports, you, you saw this nice, nice young lady. And what you see in front of you is this terrified woman who's been a, a young woman who's been abused by hundreds of men. 
not because they wanted to. You know, one of the things I found out when I was talking to uh, women who and girls who had been uh, rescued or managed to escape, none of them ever said they wanted this in their lives. None of them. And yet sometimes people from Ukraine or from Russia or from wherever around the world would look at these women and go, oh, yeah, 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 whore, prostitute, slut. No, victim, victim. The whore and the prostitute and the bastard are the men who abuse them because they should know better. You think that these 14, 15, and 16-year-olds or 22-year-olds or 23-year-olds want to be there because you fat slob? Somebody, wow, you, you look really sexy for them? There was one man, he was a fat pig. He had two women locked up in his apartment. He, he was a, a, working for the UN, locked up in his apartment in Bosnia, uh, in Sarajevo, no, in Tuzla. And he would have them feeding him grapes and whatever and doing whatever he, th they had to do. And when he left, he always locked the doors. They were barred so these girls could not escape. You know, it, the kind of stuff that goes on, it, it's just mind-chilling. And, and for me, I just get really pissed off and angry that not more is being done around the world. You know, look, this stuff has been on the books with the United States, uh, with the U.S. State Department trafficking in persons. Uh, unit since 2001, and nothing has changed. The countries are still as bad as ever. And it doesn't matter which country it is, whether it's India or whether it's the Netherlands. Germany is the, one of the biggest brothels in the world, Turkey. And, and you look and you see all of these foreign women. You know, when, when a country, for example, like Germany says, we're going to legalize prostitution, which they did, and now have discovered that it was the biggest mistake they ever made. And they look and they say to themselves, how many German women are lining up to work in the sex trade because they want to make it look good? Very few. 85% of the women in the sex trade have been trafficked in from foreign countries. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of Ukrainian women in the brothels in Germany and a lot of them in Turkey and other countries around the world. And people know that they did not go there because they wanted to be prostitutes. They were trafficked in, and they were trafficked in to what I call, you know, the 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 the, the prison of hell. Victor, I appreciate your very sobering interview. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. The prison of hell. One million children are in Russian orphanages, and you just go in there and pick your choice. Right now, I think every woman in every country, mother, daughter, husband, they ought to be walking into these U.N. buildings and looking for your children. Raise hell in there. Go in there and say, what are you doing with all these children in here? Go in there and start looking for your missing children. Put up posters. Go to your consulate. Go to your, pol your po political representatives. And most of all, make Putin culpable of his war crimes. Ravi, I want you to put that newsreel. I'll send you another copy up under culpable. If you don't have a copy, you may have a copy. It's called Sex Trafficking Ukraine Girls. That goes under our area of culpable. Culpable means every leader, Trudeau, Macron, Biden, 
All the world leaders put together are culpable as if they were betting down with these young girls themselves. They're culpable. So are the news reporters who are not reporting it. So are the people in the area who know about it but are doing nothing. You remember, he's got a list at the State Department of what they're doing. Do you know the CIA keeps a bevy of girls to get people to talk? Oh, you want a girl? And then you'll tell us where the murder happened? Yeah, okay, we'll get you a girl. That happens all the time in the CIA. What a bunch of corrupt, perverted sickos. And the number one sicko... It's Rajna or Putin, Dr. Evil. You can find him and many me on our website, the Ukrainian, theheartofhope.com. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this being ignored and not being addressed. When Donald Trump, his first two months in office, he arrested over 50,000 pedophiles and child traffickers. And, you know, some of them were in Congress. Did you notice that how many congressmen had to resign the first year he was in office? That's why they lost, that's why they lost Congress the first year. He didn't care. He was after them. No other president does that or cares about it. Biden just goes around and sniffs her hair and eats ice cream. We're a little bit tired of this uh, charade that the uh, politicians are putting on the, oh, we see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Well, you don't know what's going on. What do you mean girls are being trafficked into the U.N.? What do you mean? Ukraine women especially, because they're beautiful. This is disgusting. And I know this happens probably in almost every war. It really does. So we're going to keep abreast of this. We're going to start a launch a uh, fundraising system pretty soon once we can get it to where it's we're not going to get in trouble for it or examined for it or accounted for it or taken off the air for it. We want to help these children get back to their parents. We'll be back. You are in tune to Enlightenment Radio, home of the ultimate knowledge of body, soul, and spirit and unlimited music 24-7. Be sure and visit our website at enlightenment-radio.com. There you can journey through the mystical voyage and also view our schedule of programming. Thank you for listening.
One more bit of news, and it's uh, positive. Like I said, 500,000 Russians are evacuating Crimea. Ukraine, do not give up. Go to Washington. You wives go to Washington. Don't let Zelensky have to do it all on his shoulders. Women crying in the aisles of Congress, that has, that has some power, baby. You're about to win, and they're about to pull out. That's the way I see it, and that bunch of cowards. Anyway, here's what the assessment is of uh, General Ben Hodges. Good afternoon, General. It's fantastic to see you again. Hey, good morning, Jason. Sir, a lot of people are saying that right now what's going on inside of Ukraine is that there's a stalemate. Things aren't really moving forward. The Ukrainians aren't advancing, and they've already gotten the Atacums. Why is that then they are not moving forward? What, what's happening? Well, of course, they are moving forward, just not as fast as we would all like to see. I think the part of the frustration and maybe disappointment that uh, some observers have is that they're looking at the counteroffensive as only what's happening on the ground, you know, fighting in the trenches, getting through the minefields, how difficult and slow that that has been. But that's only a part of the counteroffensive. The Ukrainians are doing what we talk about doing, which which is counter to... Uh, Ukrainians are doing what we always talk about doing in the U.S. and at NATO, multi-domain operations. That means air, land, sea, cyber, space. They're using all of those where you integrate the effects of each of these domains to achieve your objective. Uh, of course, the Ukrainians do a good job of protecting information, so they haven't advertised what their objective for the counteroffensive specific objective is, but I believe it is to liberate Crimea, the, the decisive terrain of this war. Ukraine knows it'll never be safe or secure. Did you hear that? The ultimate goal is to liberate Crimea, and there's a reason for that. As long as Russia occupies Crimea, as long as the Black Sea Fleet or the Russian Air Force can operate from there. And they also know, maybe even more importantly, they'll never be able to fully rebuild their country uh, if Russia continues to occupy Crimea and blocks access into Azov Sea, which means that the two ports of uh, Mariupol and Verdansk will never regain their usefulness uh, or reach their potential. And then, of course, the other three main ports, uh, Odessa, Kherson, and Mykolaiv, will always be under threat uh, of missiles and rockets and, and uh, attacks from Crimea. So for those reasons, they have to liberate Crimea. And people, even smart, well-intentioned people saying, come on, you know, give up Crimea for the sake of peace, really need to get a map and read a little bit of history and understand that that is a totally infeasible outcome for Ukraine. So the counteroffensive is aimed at the liberation of Crimea. I believe the way you do this is by first isolating the, the Crimean Peninsula. That means uh, cutting the land, the so-called land bridge that runs along the coast of Azov Sea from Rostov down to uh, through Mariupol, Berdansk, and Melitopol into Crimea. And then, of course, the famous Kerch Bridge, which has already been hit a couple of times. And I believe that the uh, Ukrainians will take care of that bridge when they're ready. So the ground part, the land part of the counteroffensive that we've been watching is aimed towards that isolation, that severance of the land bridge. And by the way, 
that gives them the ability to bring up more long range weapons. Why is that important? Because the next part of the liberation of Crimea involves making Crimea untenable, uninhabitable for the Russian Navy, the Russian Air Force, Russian logistics, Russian headquarters. So long range precision weapons enable them to strike Sevastopol, to strike the air base at Saki, to strike the logistics hub at Jankoy. Um, this is how they can make Russia have to leave, or at least their military capabilities have to leave, which would be a necessary precursor to eventual liberation and occupation of Crimea. And we're seeing it happen already. A large part of the Black Sea Fleet has relocated further east because of the uh, precision strikes on uh, the maintenance facility at Sevastopol and then the headquarters. Some people have said that there's not been a decision that it's we really want Ukraine to win. That is, there's not been a political decision. The objective of the United States is that Ukraine wins and we'll supply them with the weapons necessary, such as attack them. The type that we've given were not necessarily the type necessary to do all that Ukraine needs to do. What do you think about that? Well, um, as, as proud as I am of what the administration has done with strong bipartisan congressional support so far, uh, more than 50 nations uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, significant contributions by the United States to helping Ukraine uh, fight against Russian aggression. Uh, the fact is we've stopped short of the most important task, which is to clearly identify the objective. What is the purpose of doing all this? To say that we're with Ukraine for as long as it takes it is not an end state. That, that's a feel-good statement that means nothing, actually. And so I think the administration has got to clearly identify what is our purpose, what is the objective. Obviously, uh, I believe that end state should be the defeat of Russia, eject them back to the 1991 borders. That's what the Ukrainians have said their objective is. So sometimes people in the White House will say, well, it's up to the Ukrainians to decide what they... No, they've said it very clearly numerous times. It's reestablished sovereignty of Ukraine. That means 1991 borders. Um, but because the administration fails to do that, um, you, one of the outcomes or a manifestation of that is this incremental decision-making about what to provide. I mean, how long did we wait before they finally decided to provide 31 tanks um, or to finally start training F-16 pilots uh, or to now finally deliver uh, a version of ATACMS that we saw in action just a few days ago? Um, this is because they are not committed to Ukraine winning. If they were committed to Ukraine winning, we would not hear any excuses about, well, you know, an Abrams tank burns too much fuel, takes too long to train pilots, only eight of them can speak English. You know, I mean, all these ridiculous excuses. And then on ATACMS, you know, I heard four or five different excuses, including, oh, we don't have enough. But then you hear from the CEO of Lockheed, he's never been approached by DOD, by the Department of Defense. Can you make more? So, um, this this is this is about a lack of political will and indecision. And by the way, you know we didn't we did not have a clear objective in Afghanistan after the first year. Uh, we didn't, and so we spent twenty years and two trillion dollars and thousands of lives, um, all to end in a disaster. When you don't have a clear objective, it's very difficult to develop and implement effective policy. So that objective is the key. That's what the, the White House has got to do this, and, it, and they need to be confident. Uh, 
um, not worried about what might happen when Ukraine wins. Yes, of course, it, it will be humiliating for uh, Vladimir Putin. Okay, is it is it in our interest to protect his ego? Um, is it in our interest to give them a an easy off ramp? No, I mean Russia has been an empire for 500 years, and until they are actually defeated and people are held accountable by the Hague and other uh, for all their war crimes, then we're going to be we're going to continue to deal with this uh, it, it, for decades into the future. Sir, let me ask you two final questions. Um, first, some of the NATO countries, some of our allies in NATO. Uh, have become very soft on Ukraine, at the least. Uh, one NATO leader, uh, country's leader, as you know, went to Moscow, uh, Beijing rather, to meet with Vladimir Putin uh, last week. What do you think about countries like this? Should they still be allowed in the NATO, or is that a threat for European security? Should we be more cautious what information we share with those countries? Well, I think um, there, there will be uh, questions about trust and reliability with some allies, whether we're talking about Hungary or... Uh, people were frustrated with Turkey, uh, Turkey. But you know what? When President Trump was in office, people were very, very uh, distrustful of us. I mean, first time in my life that an American president questioned whether or not the United States would live up to an Article 5 commitment. Um, that that was very damaging. And, and now, you know, as you know, I live here in Frankfurt. Uh, you spend uh, most of your time in Europe. Um, our European allies are very worried about a return or another, whether it's Trump again or another American president that is not committed to NATO, uh, that is not committed to Europe. So I, I think I don't think that we want to get into a, uh, the habit of kicking people out of NATO just because the current leader might be someone who is uh, a problem, whether it's uh, Orban from Hungary or the new uh, prime minister in Slovakia. Mr. Fitzo, um, what the United States has got to make very clear um, that we are 100% committed, that there's no there's no distance between us and the goals and the values of the alliance. And, and I think that's how we deal with it over time. You know, uh, the French and the, and the Brits were very unhappy with us after the 1956 uh, Suez uh, incident because we did not support them. Um, and... Uh, these kind of things are, are, to some extent, are the nature of, of coalitions. I, I think the U.S. just has to work very hard uh, with our allies and, and continue to uh, hold them to account. But the cohesion of the alliance, ultimately, that, that is the best way to make sure that the alliance never is involved in a war. So, General, final question. What is your opinion? Do you think now it's been 18 months of war, Will Ukraine persevere? Will Ukraine win? Yeah, of course Ukraine is going to win. And and keep in mind, as you know um, better than most, the war started in 2014. And after nine years of war, Russia still only occupies less than a fifth of Ukraine. Uh, they're losing ground. They have not been able to destroy a single train or convoy bringing ammunition or equipment from Poland into Ukraine. The Black Sea Fleet is retreating, and Ukraine doesn't even have a navy. So I, I remain uh, optimistic. Of course, um, if we, the West, would commit to Ukraine winning and deliver those things necessary to help them win versus delivering what's necessary to help them survive, 
this would end much sooner, but I think the uh, we know from history that war is a test of logistics and it's a test of will. Clearly, the Ukrainians, people and soldiers have superior will. Uh, they just they need us to provide those things necessary for them to actually win. Excellent. General, we greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for the privilege. So according to that brilliant general, as far as I'm concerned, he's got a perfect view from up above of what's going on in the Ukraine. He says their fleets are fleeing, their, their Russian fleets are fleeing, and they don't even have a navy, the Ukraine. <laughs> well, this has been my privilege to give you this positive news instead of that propaganda that keeps coming out of the West, keeps coming out of Putin. I don't know why they're in cahoots together. I do know why, because there's so much corruption and bribery going on. They owe each other favors. But hopefully they corner Putin with all this corruption. Uh, not Putin, but uh, Biden and his son. It is so corrupt. They've got so much proof now that they exchanged cash laundered money, made out in their names. Something's got to come of this. If nothing comes of this, then there's no more corrupt country than the United States. God bless you. This has been Mystic Guide. Hopefully we'll have our all of our uh, bugs worked out, and we'll be speaking on YouTube in Ukrainian language caption, okay? You just keep praying for that, and we'll be with you tomorrow, same time, same place. God bless.